Tonight, we try to figure out why the peripheral is so good. And then we continue with our three episodes of DS9, and we'll conclude tonight's show honoring the memory of Kevin Conroy. All this coming up right now on The Ryder Brothers. And welcome back once again to your Tuesday night home for The Peripheral and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am, of course, your host, P.D. York, joined once again by Mr. Corion, witch in residence, and our resident chicken shoes, Mr. Pollo Zapatos. Gentlemen, we got a good show tonight, but uh, how, how are you doing this evening? Was it a good week for everybody? I think it was a yeah. okay week for me. Doing pretty yeah, good. a lot of good film. A lot of yeah. good stuff to watch. Yeah, other than the loss of an icon, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and of course we will uh, definitely be uh, saving the last, uh, well, when we get there, decent chunk of time for for that. Because, uh, boy, there's a lot I'm learning about him post-mortem that, uh, that, uh, that I definitely want to share. But uh, but firstly, we got to figure out what is going on with the... Per- I mean, I... I for something that is so exposition heavy these last couple episodes credit we're due it is not i have not gotten bored a single second of this show and and it's not one of those you know oh we constantly got to have something happening super fast because our audience has the attention span of a two-year-old now no it's it's just oh man is it good what are we building up for See, that's one of the reasons it's good that's is I have no idea. something that's bothering me now. Yeah, now that I think about it, all that we've been watching, like how much of it was exposition, how much of it was preparation for the last episode of the season, and how much of it is like just world-building filler or episode drama. It's so... Honestly, they're, just thinking about that, they're it really doing feels a, like there is no it's answer. Like, it's like the show is a, is a nice, you know... The, the most expensive piece of prime rib you can imagine. Or uh, if you're vegan or vegetarian, the most expensive portobello mushroom or whatever your specific, you know... Dietary requirements. Dietary. Imagine the, the peak of your personal diet, which for me is prime rib. That is the greatest meat in the world. I don't care what anyone else says. I'm just kidding. I do care. You're just probably not going to convince me that, that, I mean, even filet mignon as good and expensive as that can be. I'm sorry, it just doesn't doesn't quite hit the way a rib roast does. And it feels like they're giving us a juicy piece every single week. And it's all so juicy and delicious, and it's given us so much, and yet sharing so little at the same time. I, I mean, this is some quality writing and, and, and execution of, of story that, you know, I didn't... Honestly... Think. To to build off your metaphor, it's like every week we're getting prime rib for dinner, and and there's just part of me that's like this can't be sustaining, and it's back, prime rib right back <laughs> on the plate. Prime no, rib. We can't afford this. Week. There's no way they're gonna make this again. Oh, and prime rib for Friday again. Oh. Like it, it it's just with modern media it's so there's, there's hard no to believe that that's going to be the case and even with new 
like Star Wars, I didn't know it could fall so hard because I used to just let Star Wars be great. Every time I'd watch it, no matter what happened, I'd be like, yeah, I, I, I get it. They're going to make mistakes. But this is a show where like you know that you don't know any of the backstory if you haven't read the books and you don't know what's coming and you know Amazon's track record, especially the series that they released right before this one. And so you're just like, I do not have any faith that this is the prime rib I'm going to want to eat tomorrow. And every Friday, it's like, I cannot get any more of this good of prime rib. And it keeps coming. Every Friday, it's all you can eat at the best steakhouse in, in the world, man. Yeah, there, there's glorious. There's rumors going around that Amazon's going to reboot Rings of Power. And, and I commented on it. I'm like, um... Just just do sci-fi, guys. I mean, I know The Expanse started on cool. sci-fi, but you guys continued that tradition, and you kept it good, and it was amazing. And uh, so I that's, heard I haven't finished it yet. So no that's the interesting thing I've been learning is Amazon's Rings of Power was one of the first ones that Amazon Movie Studios really took ownership of. Everything else, like even Reacher, Terminalist, and uh, this one, Peripheral, they're more like Amazon bought them halfway into production. Yeah. So they're buying the quality teams rather than buying, like in the case of Lord of the Rings, where they were like, no, we can pick the quality team. We know what we're looking for. No, you can't. Don't trust your instincts. <laughs> just just trust, the, like, trust your instincts on buying good stuff because you're really good at that. But you're yeah. terrible yeah. at trying to make products. Honestly, if if they're really not not to get too far off track, but if they're seriously going to reboot uh, uh, Rings of Power, first of all, I wouldn't reboot Rings of Power. I would I would send Peter Jackson um, several gift baskets a day, and I would ask him to begin work on a low budget Silmarillion uh, TV series, just to start. It doesn't have to stay low budget because I know that the Silmarillion isn't isn't necessarily like eventually you're going to need that Lord of the Rings movie quality to come in. But we already blew that load on Rings of Power, so we should probably start small, start easy, and just have Peter Jackson do it. That's your answer, and then put I, more I money know. for now in the sci-fi shows because those are those are or buy more sci-fi shows as as John put it. <laughs> so well, I. My thing is, I don't think the answer for how to fix the Lord of the Rings is to bring back the guy that already did it right. Instead, to me, the answer well. is, it's more along the lines of getting that guy to pick the team to start different elements of it. And so you can have a show about hobbits, a show about the knights, a show about the elves, a show about the dwarves, and then you have Peter Jackson write the movie that ties all those together. And then you have him write the next movie That's... for the next. So like you can have those like big movie directors focus on their multi-million dollar budget se- like season finale while they have all their pawns writing yeah. all the filler that fills up their season finale. I think yeah. that's the best way to do it. I mean, that's, that's getting with, like, into it. so many studios asking so many people. Let's get into right. a bit well, more. And we do have to say real quick, though, Peter Jackson did get the Lord of the Rings right, but he also got it wrong as well with The Hobbit. Uh, Arende, welcome. Yeah. Arende writes in, good evening. Uh, God knows Wheel of Time could use a reboot. Really sads me to see what they did to that. I have no yeah. connection to that personally, but I am sorry for you. 
I really can feel your pain, as John pointed out. We didn't 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 think that Star Wars, the Titan that it was, could actually fall. And well, you know, Kathleen Kennedy basically did what to Star Wars, what Eowyn does to the Witch King. So uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Kathleen. Kathleen Kennedy is is the snake to my mongoose, and probably always will be. But, uh, you know, she she's learning. She's learning quite quickly that, uh, you know, that that when you screw around, you find out. Yeah. It just so happens that you find out with mystical power from some witch that you pissed off about his favorite series. But anyway, getting yeah. back to peripheral, guys, we got a lot to cover in this episode because for a little bit of an exposition dump. The lot happened here. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, someone want to start- do plot summary real quick. I can try. I mean, it starts where you know we're starting for some reason in the Florida Keys. We're not really sure what's going on. We're, we're that was my curious. favorite part, by the way. <laughs> I almost teared okay. up a little. I'm like, oh, there she is. I miss yeah. you. You know, uh, we're, we're, we kind of look like it's some sort of like weird, you know, Better Call Saul episode that we inadvertently tuned into. And then, and then, space gun from the future shows up. Cell phone from the future shows up, saying, "Hey, Mister Assassin, who's been retired for ten years, I have a contract for you. And if you don't fulfill the contract, I'll kill your daughter." And then they're like, "Well, how the heck did you find me?" Even and he's like, "Oh, well, you know, your old friend gave us your number because we told him that if you did, he didn't give us your number, we were going to kill his family." And we'll make all that happen, or you can make some money and go kill these two random uh, two random people from up in the boonies. So, after settling scores in a bowling alley uh, action scene that was fan-freaking-tastic. Yeah. A roller coaster of emotions with the fight scenes this week. Yeah, we we get, you know, the, the peripherals version of the old man heading up to go take care of uh, our protagonist and her her brother as they're coming back from trying to get her checked out to find out what the heck is going on with her and sure enough he you know pulls off to the side of the road you know pretends to have car trouble and wouldn't you know it our main character's best friend pulls over tries to play mechanic gets involved screws up his whole plan we get a brilliant fight scene on the bridge and we finally have the deputy involved more in what's going on and we think he's finally going to get an in and finally figure out what the heck is going on and what happens stealth car hits him off the road so here we are we're now in a situation of we potentially have the the killer's killer now on the loose our deputy is in pretty rough shape and our main character decides to take the fight to the future and pick a fight with the end boss early. In what I can only describe as what if the uh, the Matrix all robot all female fight scene in the lobby review. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Rende writes in everything KK touches turns to shit. It's like the Midas touch, but literally crappier. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. We'll definitely have to continue that conversation on our next Star Wars special. Um, Arende says, what happens? Ninja car. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, you couldn't have... I was sitting there going, okay, they're obviously going to interdict him on the road somehow. I thought it was going to be shadowy government agents that were just going to pull him over and take his um, 
take his collar. But no, no, they just park a stealth car in the middle of the road. Problem solved. Yeah, I think that way you suggest would have been a lot easier, but I guess less exciting and they had money to blow on the effects budget because, I mean, these cloaking effects are some of the best I have ever seen. Oh, they're perfect. Just the prettiest, the greatest, like, like the way that there's like tiles that are transforming. I really wanted to jump in right after Corian brought up the introduction of the assassin. Okay. Because it made me realize two major huge things. Yeah, I would like to touch on that bridge fight scene when I get the chance, but go ahead. Yeah, so the, the two biggest things that the assassin in this season or in this episode really shows us is they know for a fact that they're painting these people as trained criminal killers and how do they respond when they get a really really good job that's too good to be true like criminal killers none of them are like oh yeah i'm totally in let's do it what's the job boss i've never heard your name before never heard you anybody's nobody's ever used this tech how much did you say again? Ten million dollars? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and they're they're like even they keep going. We'll up the money. We don't care. We'll give you more money. We'll do more. No, and, no, and I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. No. And these is well, not even that. The assassins are like, okay, cop, narc, narc, and <laughs> and, and they're immediate about it. Like they don't, they they act like assassins. And then, especially like if we add in the um, the other guy from the uh, the town bad guy where his episode is like we see him as an actual like criminal kingpin killing the other criminal criminal kingpins and so it kind of like came with this idea that they're actually giving their big bads an introduction that is equal to the the fight that they're about to bring to the opponent like to the main character and so like like we watch this assassin square off against other people that he once considered friends and just takes him to town right and then then he goes and fights the brothers and suddenly like okay now we're starting to see like a real power balance like these guys aren't marines that you know like me serve four years in a non-combat mos and now like think they're cool because they still drink and hang out no these guys are killers and these are two killers so far that they've put in their place or removed and like i just love how much like emphasis they're putting on setting up each fight and not exposition heavy like he's the baddest bad that's ever bad at all the bads in all the bad lands no here's a guy who's a criminal here's how he responds as a criminal doing his criminal things he's good at it great aim great thinking situational awareness all that stuff now he's going against your marines that you've been watching grow and get better throughout each episode oh they barely win and it seems completely like well-written fight it didn't feel like a climactic they're meeting all the markers of a story no it felt like a really fun story that you're like that couldn't happen and we watched it all like we all watched these events happen so there's still one, come off of it going the, like there's that. There's one hard. line that I thought was just brilliant because they keep trying to pay off these assassins. And every time that they start offering them money, the, the assassins are like, nah, this seems too good to be true. And I love that the, the guy from the future is like, why is it so hard for you guys to accept money? Like, what's the problem here? I feel like they're, 
there's i think that's actually a really cool disconnect that's being like illuminated throughout this show so far is that the future what they're afraid of in terms of like getting arrested for is almost like you have to murder half the population to get arrested it seems like it really doesn't like even with the whole peripheral thing like they just didn't want the police tracking her ip because that would let the police in on the whole thing that's going on and it's double illegal from two separate institutions that the police would just be like how did any of this happen like how is this even possible and so then there would be a whole show about the police figuring out the technology of the stubs and like that to me goes to show that like the reason that they are not understanding criminals as criminals is because the rules of being a criminal have changed so much like they they call them the clept like it's an entire organization equal to the rest of the world like governments yeah and i think that's the the disconnect is like the clep deals with their stuff internally whereas in our world no there's the police and and they'll arrest you and they will try to honeypot you and they will you know pull you in and they're like i just love that they're like writing that into the scenes into the characters in every part of the story so hindi you had some comments about the bridge fight so whereas we had a great fight scene you know, between the the assassins duking it out and the last fight sequence that, you know, was some peripheral on peripheral action. Uh, some sequences in that bridge fight just kind of seemed like they, uh, they they had a plan going, but then they realized, oh no, we forgot to do the, the let's just shaky cam, shoot it fast and have things happen real quick. No one will notice. I noticed. Um... I get that airbags on newer cars are sensitive. If a rock touches the front of a vehicle, you know, that's that happens. Um, but it just felt very ham-fisted when he drove into the side of the bridge and all of a sudden it's not working and then they gotta, you know, have the tense moments of, he's coming, he's coming. I just, I think that the execution of the fight was very sloppy and I found it to just be a bit immersion-breaking and, and I was like, uh, I get what you guys were going for. But you clearly realized you had an open, wide, big bridge that you were shooting on, and you didn't have the obstacles you were hoping for to interrupt the escapes that you did. So you just kind of, it just felt lazy and contrived to me. Um, now, now you see, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree with you a little on this. No, we don't allow because... that on this show. So, um... <laughs> well, so I'm gonna disagree with you on this. Yeah. All right. Welcome to the greatest show ever with Petey York. It's just me now. I'm sorry that you had to hear such blasphemy from people who have no idea what they're talking about. All right. Anyway, so. (laughs) (laughs) So So the agreeing squad agrees that it is obvious that Parker is. (laughs) So what I was going to say was I actually loved the chaotic frenzied pace of the fight on the bridge. Right. The fact that it felt completely pitched. The fact that everyone was so confused as to what was actually happening in the fight, I felt um, made it feel more realistic. Because like anybody who's ever experienced a mad minute will know that nothing that that happens in it makes sense. You just kind of deal with 
things second to second and hope you survive it. And that's really what it felt like to me on the bridge fight. Yeah. yeah. I just didn't buy... I think really the biggest hitch for me was just I didn't buy the explanation for why he crashed so much. Like, it just... It seemed like one second, oh, he's driving away, and the next he's... Oh, he's against the the the, the barrier after, after you know, he's... Shit, I gotta figure out how to describe this on camera. So, so he's parked here, and they're right about here, stopped, and he's coming after him, and then he's like, shoot him, and then she, he almost, you know, hits her in the heart with the, with the depression weapon, and he drives off really fast in a panic, and then just kind of like somehow gets over here into the side, and then, and then he brushes up against the wall, and then the airbags go off, which, all right, that's normal for new cars, but then they're stopped, they're stuck, they're stopped for a moment. Uh, until she's able to throw it in reverse and and get out of the situation and so i, I don't know i just it didn't it, it felt okay. very no that I, I makes sense you, you should have had like a telephone pole fall over or something i don't know i, I get where you're coming from yeah. i think um i'm re- but, what i would really I, hope is if they do a making of video for the peripheral that they'd let us see what the choreography oh from overhead was for that fight scene because i think yeah. that would have made it Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just remembering some angles differently, which is possible. It just like I said, it felt like one moment they were getting away, and then they just kind of had, uh, and then they crashed, and we're gonna show that for like two seconds and hope you don't look too long and and hope it convinces you. And I was like, I nope, I'm not, not that you took me out of it for a moment. I'm not quite there anymore. But have have you ever seen uh, Tokyo uh, news? how they do the recreations with like a CG, like funny bears and stuff like that of like tragic situations. No. Okay. That sounds delightfully need, morbid though. It, it is. We need one of those for this fight on in peripheral. We need like those guys, like we replace all of the actors involved with like little Tanuki, you know, like um, Nintendo characters. Yeah. Okay, the Simpsons actually did a gag on this for a bar fight that Homer was in. It was actually kind of Yeah, funny. exactly. Yeah, we need that for this scene and for this fight in peripheral. That, we, that's what we need. Yeah, you know what? That's actually gonna that's gonna turn into us doing it because then we're just gonna start analyzing the scenes scene by scene again and going, oh well, it looks like and, and yeah. So, is it possible? I yeah. Blink, so I, I just did time? that. Oh. Yeah, I just did it. So it actually makes complete sense why you would have your issues, but also why Corion wouldn't. And so it's a hundred percent fog of war. In this scene, we see them getting shot at. He's trying to get out of the car to get ready to jump. The the Marine brother is getting ready to jump out, and the assassin puts the gun right to her chest, and that's when he throws it in gear and goes. And as he's pulling away, he turns to get the gun off of uh, his sister, and then dr- lines up right with the other girl that's on the bridge with them. So it makes a hard right to not run into her and then a hard left to compensate. And that's when he runs into the wall is because okay. it drifts into the wall. Okay. And that's why she gets locked up into the door. Right. So it's purely like a fog of there's people in the wrong house, but they, I just watched the whole scene and in a row, you see the zigzag like, ah, okay. Then it must've just happened so fast at the time that, that my brain didn't come. Oh, I rewatched it, it three times. Just okay. To so check. you got uh, us oh, so slowed it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was, I okay. Check. I had to rewatch. So it's, so it's a fog of war situation. So it's we a fog of war, and, but it's definitely one of those but, kind of, okay. You guys went a little too close with your edits. Next time you want to have a little bit, we got it. You got it. It's like, 
It's like when you're doing dialogue. No, see, that's 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 the best part is because the fog of war when you're in it, you're like this is everything that can go wrong is going wrong and I'm the source of the wrongness, but if you're watching that person, you're like, "Bro, just slow down and take a beat." No, I I can under I can buy the panic. I just like I said, I I guess the imaging sequence for it didn't quite line up because it was it was executed maybe too quickly. Um, you know, you got to think when you're oh, yeah. think of it it's like less this. than five second scene. You, we've all sat sat through some PowerPoint presentations at least one point in our lifetime, I'd imagine, given the fields that we've been in. And, and I mean, in the military, it's required to sit through 30 PowerPoints. And if you pass out, you get kicked out. But what I was taught in school growing up when doing a PowerPoint was when you put when you have stuff on the screen for people to read by themselves, you have to read it twice before you to yourself before you transition to the next slide that's the standard rule of thumb of, of doing it and so that's what I'm, I'm using that analogy here to explain that i guess i guess they didn't have it slowed enough for my dumb brain to to comprehend and so you know one second i see him panic driving and the next second he's just kind of it felt like it was half-assed oh i'm in the wall now oh, oh no and then and, and, and so yeah it just but that's you know, to me, like that. At that, that point, we're we're, that we're talking like, subjective here, and obviously, it yeah. worked for well, you too. Even, and not, I was the only one that that it didn't resonate. Well, I really liked, I loved how the brother isn't experiencing fog of war. Like all of his choices, yeah, they're chaotic in nature because he's fighting, but like you see Finn just struggling with her seatbelt. Just, I can't get it off. I can't get it off. And then that's when he gets the gun all the way to her chest. It's like, she can't even get the seat off. And he's like, one click out, gun out. Like he's jumping and dancing in this battlefield and she can't even get her seatbelt off. The yeah. seat, like everybody knows how to get a seatbelt off. But in a time of like this much chaos getting shot at, only the trained fog of war operator is gonna be seeing clearly. Well, I, I just love that it, it again builds to why she isn't a Mary Sue, right? Mm -hmm. Because in real life, she's, you know, like when she's in her peripheral, she can ninja kick and flip around and do all kinds of crazy Matrix stuff. In real life, she can't get her seatbelt off without assistance and when she's in a panic. And that's absolutely perfect, right? And not even, and, and, and sorry, not to say not, the, the part that really highlights that is in the first episode when she's walking down the, the hallway in the per and she does that full vaulted handspring double handspring all those like really cool techniques and she's saying to everybody like as she comes out she's like yeah a hundred percent feels real when she gets shot with the gun in the peripheral she feels her body all those emotions and so it's like the thing the thing that makes her not capable of being superhero in real life is because for her it's real life that's like the legit one thing that stops her aside from maybe like the peripherals have better like faster reacting organs and stuff and that never cramps up or anything like that we don't know if that's been expressed but like as far as her ability to operate the peripheral, it's supposed to be like her operating her own body. But that little like disconnect is enough for her to be G.I. Jane in the game, but not in real life. And I think that's such a, a really well, well, like painted point that they've been yeah. doing. Because we don't have to suspend our disbelief on that. We don't have to, you know, 
agree with creative uh, interpretation that, oh, well, you know, it's a movie, so shut the hell up. No, it's it's very much treating the situation with realism, and so I agree. I like that a lot. Arende writes in, Now, the thing you have to wonder about, are Burton Fisher's implants the ones mentioned having been sent to the past for trials on population mind control? Uh, I'm going to go with yes. That was another yeah. piece that we totally missed, but thank you, Arende, for reminding us of that. When they said that, I looked over at H. Marie, and I was like, holy, everything is literally connected right now. And that's how different their reality is. And it's... that's To me, that's another question is how much was done before this stub stuff started? Like, how much was the future messing with the past before they started having variants? Ah, like, I don't think it was. Was the stub implant pre? Or is the... Like, like, did the implants happen first? And that's what led to the stub? Or were like the implants inevitable? Like once you get to the future, you send the implants back, and then once you get to a certain point, the stub breaks off. That to me is like what that opened up. I don't know if the stub ever actually broke off. That's where that I'm too. At. Yeah, that that's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, so well, bad. and we also don't know how many other stubs they've actually opened. They they could literally. This could literally be the first one that's actually been opened and that they're actually communicating with back and forth. Because they've Right. Only- There's a lot of talk about them trying to get more stubs. There's been no conversation about multiple stubs. Or, as Corion suggests, whether or not this actually is, this could still technically be their past, just they're finding self-fulfilling out. prophecy they're just yeah yeah and i mean oh, I know this is what i brought up last time with the whole south carolina yep crossing oh that's where we live or arendi actually in the chat brings up an excellent uh excellent uh, correct usage the good old bootstrap paradox this is exactly a bootstrap paradox well done arendi Five oh, please elaborate. Elaborate the bootstrap paradox for idiots in the chat. So, of course. So, the bootstrap paradox um, is literally where um, you send something back in time to help you in the future. So, nobody actually created the technology. Oh, so Bill and Ted. Uh, Beyond Bill and Ted. Think uh, Think about this. Let's say I were to send back in time um, the first microprocessor to back in the 60s when they initially came up with the idea. I feel like there's Nobody... a Star Trek episode about this. Yeah, Transparent Aluminum, actually. Let's use Transparent Aluminum. It's a better one. Oh, that's a movie. Nobody... I was thinking about Voyager when, when they go back to 1996. Or... <laughs> that's okay, well, let's, use, let's use Transparent Aluminum. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. So Scotty didn't invent transparent aluminum, but he knew the formula from the future and handed it back to people in the past. He says that it's been around for a long period of time, but nobody actually created transparent aluminum because nobody invented it. It was just something Scotty remembered somebody having invented, gave it to somebody in the past, and now it shows up in a textbook for him on a material to create. Nobody actually created it. It exists purely as an artifact of the timeline. That's oh. entirely possible what we're seeing here 
with the 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 haptic implants ah so uh predestination kind of like a predestination paradox but a bootstrap paradox specifically involves a piece of technology or like for lack of a better term a macguffin well well they don't really explain how the time travel works in predestination so that could very well be your your strap paradox Mm -hmm. well predestination paradox typically involves a person meeting someone else like they had to do a specific event for the timeline to continue properly is that your bro the and give him fries a his own grandpa go into a certain place no no is yeah, that the fries his own grandpa paradox oh okay yeah yeah oh, that makes a lot of sense so the bootstrap that i love time paradoxes because i think it's one of the most like elaborate ways to uh deal with life because like it's like how much does your choices actually matter do they did it last 100 years from today some do which ones do how do you know how will you know the uh the 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 future like um and how do you identify which choices are going to actually matter and then when you have time travel on it it's like trying to go back and see all of that stuff and i think if anything time travel is the same as gold digging like we're, we're looking for the threads that are going to get us the most value but once we start looking at the access to all the threads it's just so much available gold Mm-hmm. And, and and not even just gold in terms of like you can grab all of this out of this one well instead you can grab this one out of this well put it into that well get compound interest on that well and just keep messing with these threads and milking all of them and then to me that's where the next big question that I haven't seen in films yet but it looks like we're kind of getting a taste of is like when you have abs- or access to infinite resources like the past and past that no longer are connected to you because you took all of their resources. How does that change your approach to the, your future? Like now that you have all these resources, what are you going to do with it? And this show really seems to show it's like what they're kind of doing with it. Part of it has led to giant statues. Other parts of it are leading to just standard shady business practices yeah um so cool yeah i mean the the best way to explain it would be yeah like a predestination paradox arendi's got it right here as well when when arendi writes in predestination has a definitive cause and effect bootstrap is a loop with information or an item that has no identifiable source no beginning no end Right. That's that's a better way to yeah. put it. I personally look at it as so um Bootstrap has a MacGuffin. Predestination doesn't necessarily the, the movie Predestination, which if you're super into time travel and can uh you know, and be somewhat morally ambiguous, <laughs> is definitely one to check out. Um mm-hmm. it, it's it, it basically it is definitely after Arende's um breakdown predestination is a bootstrap paradox story entirely so i I would because well i I, can't i don't want to say too much without spoiling it because it is what's you know it is pretty interesting reveal and it's a fascinating film 
Um, when I first watched it, I was pretty grossed out, and then I watched it a second time most more recently, and I'm like, eh, you know, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I would even argue um, for another good example of a bootstrap paradox, uh, Babylon 5's fourth season. There is a definitive predestination, or a definitive both predestination paradox and a bootstrap paradox once you realize one of the items involved. So worth checking out. They basically screw with time and time really screws around too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I love that, that, that we had that here. Um, you know, I love that she just was like, well, she tried to, you know, our main character decided, well, you know, she picked a fight with me time to go pick a fight with her. And went to her head office and decided to beat on her for a while. Well, I, I love the, I'm going to break your neck. Yep. And you're just like, wow, that is a vicious thing to say. And in every fight, like with the way they open, there's a lot of talk in the start. But for her to say that and end with that, just, God. I was so proud of her, like. She, she came in with a mission and she went to like tell these people what they were doing wrong and this lady was like well we're not doing anything wrong you're not real like you, you're a figment of imagination because we access your timeline and now you're looping back into our timeline and yeah it's a bother but like you're a bug not a feature yeah and I think I think that's really the big fight is like no this is a feature for an infinitely new app and you're missing out entirely by focusing on all the other parts of the app that you originally created the stubs for well and I, I think what we definitely got some backstory into Elita's journey as well why she wanted to get access to the stubs so I think this is building to something really, really good. I you don't know, think we have too many episodes left yeah, either for we, it to get we, somewhere. We are past the halfway point. We've only got three episodes left in this season. We may be looking at another severance situation here where, where we get a ballsy cliffhanger, which, I mean, at this point, I, I didn't think severance was going to be that bold, and yet they, they, they did it. They went with the cliffhanger, and I can't wait for season two. Rende writes in, so anyone else thinks that the infection centered only around her visual cortex is encoded with that data that was beamed by the green crystal? Yes. Yeah, that was my in immediate thought. It's the only thing that makes her different from everybody else, and they said something about it being an organic virus. Or acting organic, I think is what they said. That, oh, to me... Bacterial, I think they mentioned as well. Yeah, did they say it was bacterial or acting bacterial? I think they said acting okay, bacterial. Yeah, because sure. I get the vibe that it was something about, well, mostly because I want to know how they laser beam a virus into her eyeball, into her brain, and then now that it's coming out. Unless that virus, and this is a lot of what you were saying earlier, Corey, on like the self-fulfilling uh, bootstrap policy, in the sense that she gets virus because Alita wants to stop the jackpots and that starts the first jackpot which the, was the second jackpot was the virus yep yeah. the, so this, like, the second piece of the jackpot the jackpot was yeah. the entire 
I thought they said it was several jackpots. No, each, no, they called it the each, jackpot because each it was round of super death. It was several, was yeah, it was several apocalyptic events that they just they, they felt that apocalypse was underselling it, so they called each apocalyptic event the jackpot. Okay, so it's a piece so, of yeah, the pie. So, yeah that's right so so the virus is one of the first pieces and the last piece is south carolina militia group setting off a new the militia group in south carolina that was also potentially the one that was tested on by the future with the heptic implants that is now finn's brother and team protecting her that is now being assisted by alita who did some kind of brain zap yeah do do you get the impression that it's going to be uh the boys uh here that are going to be the ones that set off the nuke that's what i've been thinking but to to what extent is it we're setting this nuke off so these people don't come back don't do this to us if we stop their future then they can't come back and do this to us they, there was a jackpot that caused us to need to go back to the past to help and it just keeps looping yeah I'm wondering if the data that was downloaded was actually the virus right from the from the initial calamity and that the decision to fu- to cook off the nuke is to try to contain it and it fails that makes sense especially with how many people that they are interacting tertiary relation yeah tertiary interactions where like they know them because they live in the same town but they aren't going to get protected by this person so they could hug them while they have the virus and then just give it away and nobody would ever remember like if we think about it she has to remember every physical interaction she's had since that i see yeah yeah i mean i want to see the logic on that because i'm sitting here thinking of you know giving covid superpowers that that sounds like a terrible idea uh, bad yeah i i think arendi yeah, i'm pretty sure that's how they stuff. made covid <laughs> maybe all right we've said it twice we can't say it anymore we, we can say we can say the f-bomb a lot more than we can that word but uh yeah um arendi actually comments uh that that doesn't work it's a parallel past changes made in the past doesn't affect the jackpot future i don't know no it's been implied it doesn't no it doesn't affect that future but that doesn't mean that it doesn't repeat that future like how did that future come to be well in the original past the original people allegedly originally sent this stuff back they originally created all these events and now we're ground two which is another like four leaf clover of this same bootstrap and every single time they do it in this order it just repeats and keeps creating the same future because it's a loop yeah arendi what i'm actually um i am actually proposing that we are looking at a terminator style timeline where judgment day is inevitable that there is no way to avoid it and any action you take to avoid it actually winds up bringing it on faster even in the stubs it doesn't matter and that the difference potentially between their future and the current past where finn is living is that not every stub, not every past survives the jackpot? There's and well, okay, so there's one of the that, few that 
Well, I think it, so I think it's a double. So that, yeah, that's that's a major piece to it too. But Arundhi writes in, that's why they call it a stub. As soon as they contacted the past, they created a new branch, hence the stub name. And that's actually, I think, the error. Um, not in your logic, Arundhi, but in the future's logic. They think that they're interacting with a different past because they already interacted with the past. But every time they go back and mess with the past unless they go back to the exact day they went to originally then all of the events that take place are they're not creating new stubs they're all stubs on stubs like you're going back to the future but that doesn't mean you're going back to your past or, or not back to the future you're going back to your past or the past but that doesn't mean you're going back to your past because that would imply that your time is permanent and these stubs you can only access once but we've seen them continuously react reinteract with the same stub so it could be more like a that we've got a, a tangential future which is where the show is 2100 and then their interaction with the stub is helping point the stub back at themselves. And so it's starting to run parallel futures. It's not going to be the same people in the future. But then that also brings in the question, when they contact the future, are they contacting the future that contacted them? And this is why temporal mechanics is such a Rude upside. So fun. But yeah, it's this a lot of fun to discuss. But do we have any we have any final episodes? Well, we do so have to watch. We, we do have three DS9 episodes and a and a memorial to do, so I hate to throw an axe in the discussion. Well, not really early, but kind of tracking. In that case, final thoughts for this episode so far from me. I believe that if you are into time travel movies and stories and just want to see how many different paradoxes can be asked in one series. Boy, do we have the show for you. Because yeah. this is so much fun. They're playing with all of it. Yeah, yeah. wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Says Arendi. Absolutely, Arendi. Yeah. That is the perfect description of time. But it's also like that's where this creativity is coming from. That's where this show's beauty is having its most just growth. Is Messing with the wibbly wobbly timey wimey. I love all it. All right. So. Which episodes are we covering, Petey? Alright, so, moving on to Deep Space Nine. So, last week, um, because John decided to put up such a stink over the first episode, we didn't get to it. I'm just kidding. I'm actually not... And to go back all, to that, I've actually I'm not, not taken any extra notes and left that conversation there. I'm... I'm I, no, I, I, I'm very happy if that happens with a DS9 episode. If we focus on one and have to triple up for the next week, that's great. That means that the show has lots of relevance to continue to discuss and progress really was one of those head-scratcher, there-is-no-right-answer episodes. Um, but... Now we can move on to one that, you know, kind of almost approaches run-along home territory, but not quite as cheesy. However, still not without its uh, very awkward and man-do-I-feel-bad-for-Bashir-in-this episode moments. Uh, you know, I was that nerdy kid that fantasized about women that were out of my league, which, and so 
watching this episode and watching Bashir go through a lot of the same things that nerdy kids had to go through growing up. Boy, this one really just speaks to you. So first, synopsis. The crew detects an unusual energy reading. Elevated Theron emission, excuse me, Thoron emissions near the Denorios belt. Fisco and Dax think it might have something to do with the increased traffic since the wormhole was found and Dax investigates to find out if it poses any danger to the station. Meanwhile, Chief O'Brien is telling the story of Rumpelstiltskin to his daughter, Molly, and after he leaves, Molly tells him the fairy character appeared in the room. To his astonishment, Molly tells the truth. He faces Rumpelstiltskin. All of a sudden, all over the station, people's secret imaginations appear in real er, appear in for real, causing chaos. Quark is escorted by two beautiful ladies and seems very happy until he finds out everybody is winning with Dabo. Bashir finds Jadzia Dax in love with him, and baseball player Buck McCoy appears before Cisco. Odo must work in the snow to keep the promenade safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, sloppy description, actually, but hey, now we got the gist. Yeah, it works. <laughs> so, I mean, this one's a fun episode in a lot of ways. It is, but. I mean, it wasn't a particularly intense or, or hard episode, I guess, is this one. Like, it was fun. Honestly. It, was, it was silly. It was kooky. Ru- having a, a gnome run around the station was kind of fun. But... Having it come right after the, the last episode that we discussed, and then an episode that comes next, it, it makes sense why they put it there. Yeah. But honestly, all of the value in the episode can be summed up in the final conversation between Cisco and the baseball player. Because it turns out this was a first contact from a superior intelligence. And it was like, how did Starfleet respond? They somehow were capable of A, traveling without a ship, and B interacting with imagination and bringing it to life. Yes, in but, a but they more didn't... than holographic instance. But they, the imagination the, the... is what fascinated them. That's what captivated, that's what had their interest because they couldn't comprehend right. or understand it. So, technolo- so technologically to me, speaking... Their, their super sentience is more along the lines of Vulcan. That's where I would say like their sentience well, went. I mean, it was super logic. Jo- Jonathan Archer would fight you over that uh, that that idea that <laughs> Vulcans are somehow superior, and I'd actually kind of have to agree with him. No, 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 no. I'm saying so. Like, if, if you put Vulcans and humans as equal in intelligence in sentience, then a sentient, super sentient Vulcan would appear like this race like oh why do you guys still care about mag- imagination what is imagination oh that's a, a useful tool that we've never like cared about because we evolved out of it because we went logic all the way and then humans are like we went emotion all the way and so if it was a super sentient human it would be more like wow you guys haven't mastered your emotions yet you haven't mastered your ability to love everyone but a super sentient vulcan is like wow you guys can't even ima- like master your imagination you guys can't master your like what you think about and dream about and and that's that that's why i brought that up uh 
well, I don't think that Vulcans have mastered their imaginations either. They no, just have but super sentient Vulcans. Like, right, if they, they had didn't, an It's not that they had mastered their imagination, Vulcan. though. They had no comprehension of it. They didn't understand it. That's why they, they observed him was because he was like, your ability to manifest thoughts and ideas is is foreign to us. And, and so that's why... You know, it, it helps put the bow on top because I had forgotten about the ending of this episode. And while I'm watching it, I'm going, man, this one's, uh, I don't know if I remember this one being good. And then it ended and I was like, oh, right. This one's actually, this this is what Run Along Home was trying to be. Fun with a good reason. And it ended up with fun with a good reason, whereas Run Along Home was what it was. We'll get back to that after we, I... after we view the rest of the series. Um... <laughs> Uh, Corion, Arende has fan mail for you. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hold on. Let me take a quick look. Uh, whoop. Uh, late beginning. Okay. Sorry. Uh, time uh, is up. Time flies. Time bandit time. Was always, uh, time is not time. Uh, that sounds very much like a Doctor Who reference. Either stop pointing guns at other people or get a bigger gun. Plus five internet points to whoever knows the reference. Bit late, but getting you getting the re- or getting it right took a bit of research. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, a Doctor Who kind of reference. Um, but that's that's negative. No, okay. I, I personally have always mm. heard the Zaf- the Zathras reference, which is time. There is always time. It is you who is finite. It is this who is finite. And this, this is wrong tool. Uh, Farscape, unrealized reality. Ah, okay, yes. Sorry, I am not a big Farscape person, so I probably wouldn't have gotten that. Yeah, sorry, man. Uh, uh, Your witch is in another castle. Yeah, listen, while all the cool dudes were watching Farscape, I was hanging around watching Lex. Uh, You know... And I thought that I was too cool for Farscape, even though I love Star Trek and Star Wars. So, <laughs> a bit of a hypocritical nerd, but that's what happens when you grow up in a toxic culture. There you go. But it's all good. Um, yeah. And I mean, I know Farscape is really good. I just haven't had a chance to revisit it the way I probably should yet. You know what? We'll get to it and uh, it will add it to the list. So in about 10 years, Rende, after we do our <laughs> B5 rewatch slash first time watch for this guy and probably the, I get this right eventually, that guy. Um, I'm never going to get my hands pointing at the right people. Just, you know, it's a double mirror effect and it just messes with me so hard. And it doesn't really matter. I, I'm pointing at right Corion in my head. Nope, I'm pointing at not pointing at me. Every but close. time. I know. But every single time I'd be like, yeah, no, I remember it's that one. I mean, I, I... And yet, I can point to PD and I can point to you without any problem. I mean, I identified as a Jedi for a while. That's basically a space wizard. I mean, I'm, I'm there you go. almost there. I <laughs> just gotta, you know, read the literature required to actually learn anything. Yeah, well. You know, and, and you know, we gotta teach you how to use a lightsaber. <laughs> right, yeah, no, that's probably a good idea, too. Did you know Valiant Renegade has a lightsaber academy? Oh, really? No, not really. It's a guy. That's this, it's this lightsaber training video that that in the guy that's in there talking about the two people dueling. He almost looks and sounds a lot like Valiant Renegade. 
Nice. Yeah, I'll have to show there, it to There's you. supposedly a Jedi temple in Toronto. And I won't tell you how tempted I have been to try to get a whole bunch of dudes in Stormtrooper armor with Nerf guns and just go at the front of it with a red lightsaber and knock on the door. I, I, I don't think that's, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to do it. No, so like, you could, you know, it's, it's one of those very risky, you know, cultural, res, you know, religious exchanges that, that right. you're, you're doing out of love and respect, but for fun. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's almost like it's, the best way it's, to do it's it. It's almost, hold on, please let me finish. It's, it's a bad joke. It's a bad joke, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's almost it. like like getting somebody, one of you guys in the coven, to strip down to your underwear and be whipped in the street while carrying a cross to a messianic congregation. I know. You're trying to do it out of respect and love, but that's just going to not have the message you want. Exactly. Here's, here's how you make it work. There is a way to do it. So you, you get like 10 or 15 people fully like hard charging in with you and then when they run out the back you have like 40 stormtroopers with like breakfast platters oh okay good joke you gave us food so we're not gonna take this first yeah something like that yeah like you got a picnic or something but you keep all of them you keep all the other people that are hosting it in stormtrooper gear so it still all works and still funny as a joke but also nobody can be angry at free breakfast food right yeah no um, i i think and honestly you could get away with same with your cross method no like i said with free breakfast food everybody's gonna be like well it was a pretty accurate reenactment depending on which messianic or even really any christian congregation you do that to it's gonna go one of two ways either they're gonna be like oh thank you for this for this show of 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 appreciating and respecting our faith in this weird way, or you're gonna get the angry, you know, church ladies wagging their fingers into shame, and so it's like, ah, it depends on how many Karens are in the congregation. Yeah, church is full of them. So, is get the Karens in on making the breakfast duties so they feel like they're in on joke, an inside yeah. job. That's the whole joke is to prevent them from freaking out. But just, just yeah, just and, and uh, you know, I'm not saying no, we're not trying to be blasphemous so we just had a guy dressed as jesus carried a cross and we're whipping him because well according to the bible that's what happened and we thought we would just reenact that for you guys but but a bunch of witches doing it i could see how that could come off as disrespect joy so uh the forsaken uh sure playing uh (laughs) reluctant host to a delegation of federation ambassadors i guess we're done with wizards and horses all right that's cool (laughs) Well, that like it ended with that one, like the line about the whole thing. It just, I felt like that whole episode was just like you said, Parker, is fun and doesn't matter past that, except for the last line where it describes that there was more to the fun. That it was a first contact of sorts. They were yeah. they were being and observed. That was the whole episode exactly similarly, and that explained everything. That explained you know that 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 squabble between alien Jadzia and regular Jadzia, you know, calling her out on, on, on her head. You're making dumb reasoning, but Jadzia, you know, being Jadzia thought that it was Julian's thoughts. She was arguing with not an intel, a super likely, as you suggest, a superior intelligence. And, you know, that, that could have changed the course of things. If, if instead of disappearing at the end, she sat them both down and gone, guys, might have something good here 
and you might want to try it, but, uh, well. Yeah. Once nope. again, you know, this is, you know, this is where we get to see early on the, the beginnings of, you know, we have O'Brien Must Suffer. This is the beginning of Dr. Friend Zone. Yep. <laughs> but Dr. Friend Zone of his own making. Like, oh, yeah, 100%. To me, I've, oh, I've been yeah. watching the way that he approaches Dax, and he he has all this reverence for Dax's historical leg- legacy, but then all of this standard hominid affection for Dax's body, and he can't treat the two as separate or equal or anything, and Dax is just like, that's not who I need to be. Like, I don't need to spend 20 of my millions of years helping this guy feel good about himself just because I'm hot for this 20 years. Yeah, well, I mean, when you consider, like, you know, it'd be really kind of it would be difficult, right? I mean, you imagine your girlfriend's like 300? That'd be really hard to deal with that level of experience, right? No, you that's know? a win if you're not judgy. No, you're no, not no, no, insecure. No, no, no. no, no. But, uh, well, all I'm saying, is, yeah, if you're not insecure, but at the same time, it's like most of humanity, as in all of us, are insecure in one form or another. I, I'll be honest, I would have a lot of difficulty with it. I would have a lot of difficulty dating somebody that can literally say, well, I've raised kids seven times, and this is the best system I've found so far. Well, look, young lady, yeah, like the way you raised your, your kid... Ah, shit. I'm not winning that right? one. Ever. Exactly. Yeah, you're not winning any arguments. Like, not, not in the stereotypical, right. you're the man you must lose. It's that, no, this is 300 years versus right. you're still a piss in the wind. Yeah. But then look at how Dax look at how Dax deals with everything Bashir has thrown at her so far. Yeah, is, she's trying Dax to point like, that look, out. Look, bud, you're not ever gonna be comfortable with the whole me that exists. So stop doing anything more than like, yeah, hook up, sure. We'll do that. That's fine. But you're you can fall in love with this form, but this is only half of me. You know, and, and that's something that I think this show does such a great like part of is like some of us are half attractive but have zero intent on using that to our game we want to focus on whatever we want to focus on and then people are like well you're too pretty to be busy and it's like no i'm working because i'm a worker i just happen to be a pretty worker and and bashir can't he can't reconcile that and so dax won't let him that's it. And, and that that I think is is the bigger point to what you're making, Parker. Even like you were saying, she's out of his league because they're playing two totally different games. Corazon or Dax is is playing the game of eternal life in different bodies, while Bashir is playing mortal existence what? and trying to find love before he dies i don't know if it's inter- eternal life i've been kind of thinking about the dax symbiont in terms of like it's like a portable hard drive almost like you just kind of like download lifetimes worth of information and experience and I you don't do, necessarily yeah. get the full personality but you get a lot right well, it's, it's a symbiosis the cool part that that yeah. they've like really explained uh, in a very great way like that's why they call it Corazon Dax versus the new Dax. I can't remember. Or Curzon versus Curzon Dax. Jadzia. Yeah. So that's to me like that's the coolest part because that your analogy of the hard drive makes it make even more sense because you have Corazon or Curzon Dax, and then 
Dax moves on to a new body, but now Jedzia brings them back into Jedzia's going through Jedzia's life with Dax's information. And yeah. I think that's the part that Jedzia Dax knows is Jedzia Dax is willing to fall in love, has no problem falling in love, but has every problem falling in love with somebody who can't reconcile all of these realities that are a part of Jedzia Dax's life. And so the absolute professional that is Jedzia Dax is saying like, you don't want this. And I know people, I know how people show what they want. What you want is the Jadzia without the Dax. And you can never have that because Jadzia wants Dax and Dax wants Jadzia and together they are Jadzia Dax. But you just want Jadzia's body. And that's playing two different games and they're not in the same league because Jadzia made a relationship with Dax that is now contis any other relationship. You cannot be in a relationship without Jadzia and Dax. Yep. And that's not for everyone. This says uh, slug hard drive disc. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Uh, I would say it's more like a solid state drive with its reliability. Yeah, I think it's an SSDD. Um, <laughs> Alright, so any last quick thoughts on with, uh, you know, if Wishes Were Horses? Definitely one of the funner episodes of DS9. Well executed, fun episode of Trek overall. Yeah, I felt that this... I'm just going to say this one last piece. This really felt like it um, harkened back to the original Trek's, like, space alien of the week kind of feel. Yeah. Uh, As opposed to, you know, what we potentially can get more on on a station. This felt more just like a space alien of the week. Yep. All right. And uh, moving on now to uh, the foreskin or shit the forsaken, the forsaken. stupid brain <laughs> <clears throat> now to mess up some more words as I read a synopsis Dr. Bashir has to take care of a delegation of ambassadors visiting DS9 to take a look at the wormhole in Quark's bar an ambassador from Beta Z Loxana Troy gets robbed of her brooch Odo is able to find the culprit, and suddenly Troy is very interested in him romantically. He doesn't like it. Meanwhile, O'Brien is totally frustrated with the Cardassian computer. It doesn't do the job right and gives opinions on every one of his commands, because he doesn't already have a wife for that. He suggests installing a new one from scratch. Then an unidentified object appears from the Gamma Quadrant through the wormhole. It looks like a probe, but has a very sophisticated computer. After downloading information from it, O'Brien notices the station's computer seems to be working better. Then several malfunctions appear, leaving Odo and Loxana Troy trapped in a turbo lift. Dun dun dun. So, that is the worst synopsis. Odo doesn't like it. No, <laughs> Odo didn't get it and was in. Entirely repulsed well, by the very fact that somebody was showing any interest in him. Doesn't doesn't like it is you're right, it's a little bit of a lazy way because he doesn't like it in the sense that he's obviously visibly uncomfortable. And and there's a difference, you know, he doesn't yeah. he doesn't understand how someone could be interested when he's literally a unique alien species. There's no one else like it. 
But there was so much to it. I loved how this like episode really yeah. broke that up. Um, real quick before you get into it, fan mail. Arende says, poor Odo, he literally melts into a puddle because of Loxana. We're gonna get to that, Arende! What the spoilers? Um, <laughs> Glenda says, hello, beautiful people. Hello, Glenda. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Hey. So, yeah, for for me, the, the, the piece that makes this episode so much fun is, look, Roxana Troy, for those who have watched TNG, she is an agent of pure, unadulterated chaos. Anytime she shows up, things get screwed up to 11. And the fact that on this particular series, she's decided that Odo is the target of her affections. The guy that absolutely does not want to be with anyone has all the, the sexual charisma of, you know, I don't even know what to call it. Like the sexual charisma of like a parka, um, you know, or, or like sexual charisma of a rock. Yeah. Um, is the one she decides to glamp on. I mean, it is just perfect, right? I mean, Rende writes in a brick. A perfect. Yeah. A brick works. I mean, you know, or, or like a tuning fork or something like there's no possible way this can work out. And that's what makes it perfect for Roxana to, to go after because it's like the one person she couldn't possibly have. Um, on top of that too, you've got O'Brien's other wife, the station. Um, his other wife, you mean his real wife. Yeah, the real wife is the station. Right, Amy actually, actually, let's, let's let's wind that back just a little bit. Right now, the station is the mistress. It's there's a point in the show when 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 the station becomes the wife, and when uh, you can't say anymore. Yeah, no, 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 no. I don't want to. Bur- I don't want to ruin that revelation. That one's perfect. But yeah, I mean, like, I currently consider O'Brien's, um, you know, the station to be O'Brien's other wife because. Let's be honest, he spends more time with it. Um, you know, it constantly needs him. And it fights him every possible opportunity he can possibly get. And the funny part is, he thinks he's finally got things under control. And no, no, the computer's just being screwed with from an outside force. And that just makes it perfect, right? And we get more of... We actually get a little bit to see why O'Brien actually does work well with the station. Um and why the station needs him in a lot of ways. And that is good. You know, we, we start getting that O'Brien is kind of a miracle worker in this environment, which we need from our engineer character. And I think that's great. Um, I like this episode because it has a lot of fun in it. I love that the ambassadors, um, you know, are just... Every junior officer has had to deal with this particular style of assignment before, and nobody likes doing it afterwards. Because, let's be honest, anyone who's raised, uh, risen through the ranks to become something like an ambassador or a dignitary or whatever has their own unique, uh, let's call them foibles. And all of them are on display from each of the ambassadors in this run. You know, yeah. I do particularly like that the Vulcan was like, you know, I should help the young girl over there out doing the analysis. And Bashir's like, yeah, that young girl is 300 years old. Maybe you better give her some space. Yeah. I I like this ambassador thing because I think it's more of a... a, 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 a 
it's like a mirror on how American ambassadors actually are and who they actually are because American ambassadors are chosen by the president in power and they're almost always give backs in terms of uh, campaign contributions. So like if you donate the most, you're gonna get the best of the ambassadorships, whichever one you, know, you define as the best because you made the most money, so you get to pick. Or you gave the most money, so you get to pick. And I think that's where this show, the DS9 and Star Trek, they've never let ambassadors be good at their jobs. No. Aside from Spock, every other ambassador is equal to any American ambassador. Oh, no, no, no. Just got Spock the job been... because they were somebody's friend. Dude, Spock would have been a pain in the ass to manage as well. He He's like the master of cowboy diplomacy. The only ambassador that I think would actually have been okay would have been his father, Sarek. <laughs> well, I think, I think the and, only and, thing and, and at the end there, Spock he had problems has... too. The only thing Ambassador Spock has in his favor is prior service. Yeah. Like, that's where you treat other servicemen. Like, you remember well, when I was on ambassador duty, I hated it too, so I'll be a better ambassador. And that's the, to me, like, that is his only caveat. And I, and the, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's something that Star Trek has actually put a lot of effort into never giving ambassadors these qualities because so many of our ambassadors are not earned ranks they're paid for pay to play and so star trek never shows them any kind of good like they don't show that a pay to play rank is not worth any respect whereas like lieutenant captain commander all of those are just pure revered and then ambassador Oh, is he a pain in the ass? All ambassadors in all of the world, in every world across all of the galaxy are. Especially the Earth ones. Yeah. In our time period. So, no, I thought that was great. I thought it was fun. It, it was a good episode. It was definitely an engineer-heavy episode. Um, O'Brien got to suffer by beating his head against the computer system. So, I think we can put this on the O'Brien Must Suffer scoreboard. Um, very low tier but but it's it, it can it, it's there it, the, the point got scored it wasn't like a, a great goal but it was a goal um yeah 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 no we got some we got plenty more suffering down the line uh had some some of that discussion on uh clobbering times this show this saturday but obviously oh, i won't get into it <laughs> for obvious but that's, reasons to, to me though that that's another really great thing that this episode did as far as showing who O'Brien is, because there was a challenge. I can't remember what it, when it was, but somebody was like, I thought you were supposed to be good. And, you know, like you see him dealing with all these issues, and it's like, yeah, he's so good that he can go from the perfection that is a Federation flagship, just elite top of its class all the ai all the perfect engineers all the perfect builders all of it bells whistles gets, you name it yeah exactly and then he gets put on this cardassian cheapest possible manufacturing lowest bidder one computer and he's conquering it and that's why he got the job because yeah. as far as you know, engineers go cheap is the primary winner <laughs> when it comes yeah, you, to you, you really can be the greatest the... engineer in the world. But if you're using cheap products, you got a cheap yeah, product. You, 
you really get the impression that O'Brien got this job um, taking care of this Cardassian monstrosity because literally no one else in the Federation wanted it. Or could I mean, do it. Yeah, or could do it, right? Like, like he's earning his stripes as Scotty. Yeah, like, I, I, you, I get the impression that, like, you know, they offered it to LaForge, and LaForge took one look at the station and went, oh, hell no, right? And then they offered it to a couple of others, and they're like, you're kidding me, right? And then they get to O'Brien, and O'Brien's like, wait a minute, I get my own station? And they're like, uh, yeah, yeah, you get your own station to, to, to rebuild however you want. He's <laughs> like, oh, I'm in, right? Yeah. Uh, Arende says, that O'Brien must suffer gives me uh, Krillin death count vibes from DBZ Abridged. Okay, so I, oh, should, yes. I should probably check out DBZ Abridged then. I, I did love uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged and Helsing Ultimate Abridged. Those are awesome. But, we also do have our own DBZ. We do have our own up and coming abridged series. Um, might not get an episode this week because the quality was bad. But our super quest series, we have abridged five to ten. Well, trying to keep them down to ten minute versions at least. Um, just of our of our super quest shell. So if you like abridged stuff because it's quick and easy to absorb, and you like random clips with silly jokes probably find it in a better abridged series but still give us a check give us a try anyway <laughs> so yeah and dbc abridged was fantastic it, it's trying cool. so hard yeah no we we get a lot of th- this this series um arende says the best abridged series is sword out sword out online abridged hands down okay good because i only watched like the first question. episode and they took forever to come out with the second so i kind of stopped following that one when they started question for you guys then is this all the same group that keeps doing these abridged series because i've only seen the helsing one um and no. i thought they were so funny else no um no. little helsing karibo, is done by a different group. yeah little karibo i know does the Yu-Gi-Oh abridged helsing ultimate was a different guy um i believe he actually does call himself the the crimson effer on youtube or on twitter um and uh i, I think sword art sword art was also somebody else too but that shouldn't stop you because every one of them have aped the format properly. And yeah, really good. The only one that did like really... on that Helsing style, like because that that I've watched that whole abridged series since episode five. I've rewatched every episode, like as the new episode comes out, like ten times. Yeah. I love that show so much. Yeah, Arende cleared it up and said, no, DBZ is Team Four Star. Uh, Sword Art Online is something witty entertainment. Yeah. So, mm. that's pretty good. But, they, but they've all ate that style. That funny. Good. Yeah. Maybe that's what we should rebrand to, the Witty Brothers. Uh, <laughs> the Wimpy Brothers. No, wait, no. No, no. The Wrong Brothers. Um... Yeah, I, I, there's also a lot of character development with Odo that takes place. We get a lot more ex, you know, we actually get to see what happens when he doesn't regenerate after 16 hours. We, we get to see some some exchange of vulnerability from Loxana Troy, the fact that she's insecure about her natural hair and she prefers wigs to 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 her regular hair, and of course that finally convinces that Odo was, that it's okay to. That was the absolute. I love that Glenda, I think it was Glenda said, yeah, Loxana Troy really becomes into her own in DS9. This was the greatest Loxana Troy that I've ever seen and having only seen TSG uh, or Next Generation. Um, 
the way that Odo says, we'll be fine as long as we remain calm. And then Loxana talks a little bit more. And then she goes, I can't. And he's like, can't what? And then she's like, I, I really need to keep like talking. It helps me. And, like, But what she said when like, I loved when she goes, I can't, what she meant was, I can't keep calm. I'm freaking out. And Odo heard that. And then also heard it in the fact that that's not how she responded and heard that she was giving him a solution. Like like a lot of times when like, especially like raising kids and being around kids, like I can't do it, I can't do it. And it's like, no, you can, you're just doing it wrong. Twist your arm the other way. But, but like when somebody says, I can't, I need you to do this like that's I have a problem here's the solution and then that fixes it and the way that she did that it was the most like professional like I can't I need to talk if I stop talking I'm gonna start really thinking about how bad the situation is yep. is it cool if I just talk your ear off even though that's not what you want me to do like I know that that pisses you off I've seen that it was irritating you but right now I need you to know that like it's the only reason I'm not peeing all over this place. I'm scared. And then he's like, very well, please. And it, like, as a professional, like that's a, ah, the show just has so much professional and I love that. And John, all I can say is this, is if you like, uh, on a Troy now, I've got good news for you, son. I respect her. We're not going to tell now. you what it is, but we got good <laughs> yeah. news. I respect her now. I do not like her yet based off of next generation she's no one so does. obnoxious but, but that's her charm right like that's why we like her well, is no, because she's just this agent of chaos that disturbs the apple cart well to me i think that she's not so much a, it's it, in next generation i really get the midlife crisis mom vibes that yeah. she's supposed to be portraying but in this one i got a whole human like in the other one, it's it's a mom because her daughter is a main character who we all respect and revere. And so when the mom comes on, we're like, okay, she's momming her daughter. And we get that. We also know that that's what moms do. But when we see her in this one, when I saw her in this one, the way I saw her was so much more just her own self. Yep. Her own Luxana that had no daughter, that had no affiliation to any of these people through her daughter. And in that moment, she acted like an actual adult who was hitting on somebody, but like she had a line and she didn't cross it. Whereas like with Kirk, she crossed it all day, every day. Or Picard. Because it was her daughter. Or Picard, right. Because it was her daughter, she was so willing to cross that line, didn't care. But when she found somebody she was actually chasing, the time when she knew that she needed to be honest about how she was feeling, she was. And that's the beauty that I like. That's where that respect comes from. It's like, okay. So in all those other scenes that I've seen her, she was a mom with an adult daughter. And that's an awkward, no matter who you are, meeting anybody's mom is always going to be slightly weird. And then now we see a woman who has womanly feelings acting like an adult with professionals, being good at her job, being good as who she is. Now all that other stuff that's hijinks and that's phenomenal and now i like her more because of it but it took me a while to respect her and this episode did that mostly that one line just oh she is a person 
<laughs> I loved it. So yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a fair bit of good there. So yeah, I think it'll work out. Yeah. Um, and then I guess we move on to Dramatis Personae. Dramatis Personae. <clears throat> Hira has found out a Valyrian ship known for transporting dolomide used in Cardassian weapons to Bajor is about to dock at DS9. Not on her watch, or so she did. She is convinced the Valerians are still trading the stuff and want to deny them, but Sisko disagrees with her. He is only prepared to let Kira take action when she provides evidence. Meanwhile, Klingon ship returns early from a mission in the Gamma Quadrant. It explodes in front of the station and a Klingon who managed to beam aboard dies almost instantly. Odo tries to find out what happened, but after he experiences some weird pain that causes his head to split in two, he notices something has happened to the crew. All over the ship, people seem very adamant to choose sides between Kira and Sisko. It looks... There's... Oh, wow, someone needs to rewrite this. Uh, it looks like there's a mutiny as Kira has plans to get rid of Sisko and tries to get as much support as possible. And that's it. So, that's the summary. That that did not do this episode justice. Well, there's a couple of missing oh. words in the description that someone needs to go in there and fix. I'm not going to do it because I don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Arende says, Odo is one of my favorite characters of all of Star Trek. Rest in peace, Rene Auburn-Jernois. Uh, yes, I... I yeah. All the... D- there isn't a single character on DS9 that's bad. That's really what really makes this show special um, in a lot of ways. Uh, at least I can't remember a time. Yeah, I can't, I can't recall. Yeah. Characters I don't like for certain reasons, but I would say as far as characterization in this show, this is what this is one of DS9's strongest points that sadly most all the other Treks don't quite get close to. It's the characters and, and plots and the way that those are executed. And yes... We, we see that very well when uh, when, when certain influences, uh, when, when, when I guess you could say the, the anxiety demon sort of takes hold of the station and starts to twist everyone's paranoias and fears, and yet with Cisco they just turn on his inner child, which, hey, that's one way to pacify an adult. Um, so, this episode reminded me of an original Trek episode, and I don't remember the name, so I'm reaching out to every one of you guys here. But the episode involves um, the Enterprise finding these orbs that hold personalities in them that can inhabit uh, members of the crew, and they're trying to. They were talking about building robot bodies, but one of the bad guys is like, "No, we're just going to take over the regular people on the ship." I feel like this is an episode that pays homage to that in a lot of ways because I feel like we're getting a replay of a bunch of psychic memories of um, an event that happened in this group's history and it keeps playing out again and again and again because other cultures, species don't have the capability to interact with these memories properly and it's a cool idea, but I feel like we've seen it before. Yeah, and, and I mean, you're going to have... That, that's, there's really so much we can do with our 25 plot lines that, that we can draw from, and, and so certain concepts. And that's what I, that's that's where Star Trek, I think, really shines, is when it does do sort of a 
a rehash of events, it's actually good. Unlike The Simpsons, which, you know, how many times is Reverend Lovejoy going to get deposed from his throne? How many times are we going to see, you know, uh, Barney struggle with alcohol? It's like, you know, the same gags kind of get tired. Well, that's what I love about sci-fi is you can take a concept that's already been done and you can spin it in multiple directions. I think we saw a lot of that with Orville season three, where we'd seen stuff that, that plot lines and stuff that's been done, but we never saw it done the way that Seth presented it to us. And so, yes, this could be similar to a TOS concept we've seen, but being as big of a Star Trek fan as I am, I've come to terms with the fact that we kind of have to accept that the original series isn't going to be viewed by as many people the longer Star Trek continues. And it's understandable. This is why I call TOS the Holy Trek. Um, it's set apart from the rest of Star Trek because it's a product of its time. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we see that we kind of go, really, they, they did that, you know, and, and it's like, well, it was necessary to have those conversations, and a lot of TOS is timeless, and there's other instances where TOS does kind of need to be checked. But not because we need to read to the show and we need it to be redone and been better, but we just need to have those conversations. And those are the, that's the whole point of Roddenberry's show in the first place, was to have the conversation about yeah. the controversial stuff. And But that said, TOS isn't going to be viewed as often. I wouldn't put it... I wouldn't blame... John at all if he doesn't want to watch TOS because even with the enhanced effects, which I don't like to watch it that way anymore, I'd rather watch original cuts now, or at least original cuts enhanced to HD with original model footage, um, some of that stuff can drag. And yeah, I mean, the, the in way the I've worst ways, it. too. I don't mean like in, in the peripheral kind of, oh, it's too cerebral. I mean in like the this is all they had to work with, this is all they could afford, and this is why we're getting a lot of exposition episodes. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I've always looked at, um, you know, original series as like the Old Testament of the Bible, the TNG era as the New Testament, and New Trek as like the Book of Mormon. Um <laughs> That is that analogy is just too good, man. I don't think you can use it anymore. That's ah, yes, that is exactly. Uh, and I'll even allow that for the JJ Trek to be considered part of New Trek because it that was uh, you had a you had potential with the start, but man, does it just derail with Into Darkness. As much as I love Into Darkness personally, I also recognize it's not that great. Um. Well, I think the problem with Into Darkness was it tried to recapture the uh, the glory that was Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, and it didn't earn the the recapture there. Yeah, I think that was ultimately what the failure was. Yeah, Arende says, uh, "How many times are we going to insert Simpsons plot like here?" The answer, yes. Um, and then that's why the series got old quick for me. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, honestly, even if I ever do rewatches of The Simpsons, I find myself stopping after like season twelve. Um, then Pollo Zapatos writes in, says, TOS, the original product that led ev to everything else, they rarely solve any problems as such certain premises can be revisited in the future without tainting the original. 
And yeah, Arend- agreed. Yeah, and then Arende follows up. No, you have it wrong in my opinion. New Trek is a used child's drawing book. Uh, Again, you know what? The Book of Mormon is an appropriate analogy. You know, look, I, I, I just thought it was a, um, you know, it was a cute way to put it. And the reason why I say the book, it's the Book of Mormon is not just because, you know, people who are very well versed in the Bible do view it kind of like fan fiction, but because, um, you know, even though I say that there are a lot of Mormons out there that really do believe, believe in its teachings and they do find meaning in it. And for the people that do find meaning in it, more power to you guys. Go for it. If you believe it and you like it and this is your way, do it. I'm yeah. good with that. I just, you know, classical scholars, you know, it really does follow along the track here that classical scholars uh, of biblical stuff will turn to the Book of Mormon and go, well, what the heck is this? But, you know, Mormons and members of the Church of LDS, hey, man, they believe it and they follow it and they think it's great. So yeah. more power to them. And, and I mean, right? far be it from me because we, we just don't know who needs what spiritual message when. And, you know, there's, there's people that may start in Mormonism and end up somewhere else and they wouldn't have gotten there if they didn't begin in I mean that doesn't there you go. that's not to condone Mormonism because it isn't without its issues like every other religion um, however it's also the arguably the newest form of Christianity and so yeah. that's also why the analogy is appropriate is because you know New Trek is so new in that regard as well and I mean it's it's a funny analogy and I mean any Mormon that's going to get super offended over it you're allowed yeah, to be guys, offended but uh yeah, yeah, the guys, sooner DM you learn me, to, we'll have a discussion. And, I'm cool with that. Yeah, and the sooner you learn to take a few jokes about your faith, the easier it is to keep your faith because then you realize, oh wait, no, this this is this is personal for me. It's not. I don't need. I don't need people to see the same shiny apple that I see. So yeah, Poyos Apocalypse writes it. It was written by someone under the age of thirty. We don't let those people. <laughs> You walk on CEOs, and that's exactly the probably the same problem we have with New Trek and New War and Disney Wars is is the writers are young and inexperienced and they don't know what they're handling. And what I also don't like are the ones that think, oh, I don't have to regard canon or have any respect for it because uh, it doesn't matter. And they're learning very much the hard way. It did matter. It always has mattered. I actually would like to see, um, you know the equivalent of the rebooted writing room for some of these classic franchises where you have the old guys and you have the new teams working together. That's the I answer. I think that would have been a better solution. I, I agree. Uh, a nemesis of Eden popping in real quick says, hope everyone is doing well. Just in for the last three minutes of my break. Hey, thank you for spending that last three minutes of, to us. That that's to me comes yeah. off as giving everything you have for tonight. Um, and, and we're glad that you decided to contribute to our watch time with your three minutes that's that's awesome nemesis. welcome hope yeah, hope it's hope it's the best three minutes of your break um and uh let's see and then poyo zapato says in quotes i don't have to care because i already know why everyone loves insert x um yeah something like that um but yeah i yeah. mean d- Dominus, uh, this one definitely, it, it, it probably is a re, I mean, it's a fairly rehashed concept, but I like the way they went about it. It's not an yeah. obvious, this alien has my body. It's a, a, it's a very slow burn, 
that you slowly start stoking the fires a little bit. And it was a bit of a risky take on this on this one. See, I think this episode would have gone over a little bit better if it was season two or three when the characters were more established. But at the same time, it kind of works in season one because you're like, this seems out of, well, I don't really know these characters. So is it out of character? No. And of course, we'll find out that uh, it absolutely is. Uh, Arende asked the question, Night Shift or Australia? Uh, you know what? I brought, I said that question out loud because I'm actually curious oh, that, to too. That would be, yeah, for Nemesis of Eden. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, like I said, I think this was a, a solid episode. I think it it really also cemented in a lot of ways because we saw what these characters aren't. We have a better understanding of what these characters are. Yeah. And that, I think, helps, especially in an early episode, like in an early season. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, uh, I'm glad they didn't do the, you know, uh, strange unoriginal rehashes where we're going to do silly Captain, you know, buffoon times in episode eight of season one. (laughs) It was, it was definitely, it was a better, it was a smart play in the end. And I think it was really good. Uh, Nemesis V says, night shift at the Wendy's, I'm in Canada. Ah, cool. Hey, hey. Uh, H. Marie actually is working at Taco Bell at this moment, so you guys technically work for the same company. Um, nice. Yeah, they're owned by Young Brand. Uh, sorry, Let's go, been... Monopolies. Let's go. Well, I mean, you say that now, but when I get a chance to Let's take... Let's go, Oligopoly. Let's go. Again, you say that now, but wait until I get to take you to the greatest fast food restaurant ever and that is of course the trifecta of deliciousness being taco bell afc and pizza hut all at the same spot i know i thought the world would end by such a place existing you mean like every base you've ever been to uh i've i've only ever seen a taco bell kfc pizza hut and it is that's the restaurant it's not all three of them in the same building it's literally the restaurant is taco bell kfc pizza Hut. now the question oh no we just have those together yeah can can i get the pizza taco burger oh oh one of the one of the things i recall as i was really young but but i think one of the conversations at the time was people ask for the weirdest creations and we do our best to accommodate but uh, yeah because because yes you could theoretically get you know but well glenda says bleh they all make me ill well if i mean blasphemy against taco bell aside i'm sorry to hear that I really am, actually. I, I it's like it. It's a classic, classic marketing technique. Make room for more. Yeah. Or in Galinda's right? uh, case, there's just no point in trying because she doesn't like it. I'm sorry. It may, I Although really am we, sorry because I love Taco Bell, as you probably have guessed by now. Although, when you guys come up here, I really must introduce you guys to Mongolian barbecue with its 11 pilfered herbs and spices. I mean, we have one of those here in Mongo Idaho, but... Mongo is basically everywhere. Mongo is the greatest of all time. Build your own bowl. Yeah. Oh, man. Mongolian sauce. Get a little garlic... Or, yeah, garlic sauce. Yeah. Yeah. I love um, Mongo. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I obsess over Taco Bell. Anyway, I do love talking... Right. I do love talking no, about fast no. food. I... I hope you know that like you are obsessing over it for me because I eat, every time you're like I love Taco Bell I feel like me adding on to it is just a moot point because you're doing it enough for both of us Belinda says that's fine I have a Taco Casa nearby which is like 70s Taco Bell pre-Pepsi Co oh man that I'm now Dude. a little jealous 
Uh, and the Nemesis of Eden says, thank you so much. I hope you all have an amazing night. Stay amazing, uh, it says to all of us here in the chat and on the panel. Thanks you as well, uh, Nemesis. Thanks for stopping by on your break. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm and uh, yeah, booty. we actually, uh, we also. Oh, dude. No, 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 no. I've got, I've got a place up here that does poutine right. You will trust me on this. It is amazing. That is done right. Yeah, and Glenda. A hundred percent. We do figure out the Ryder brothers get together bash the Ryder brothers bash. Um, I'm probably gonna. I may end up. We might have to make some home. We might have to do some home cooking as a piece of that because I'm gonna have to do. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do my, uh, my steak or my mom's recipe steak fajitas, which I've been tweaking um, a lot. Nice. How about um, the Ryder Brothers family reunion? Well, I was saying the Ryder Brothers bash, TWBB, but uh, yeah, the, yeah. the Ryder Brothers family, you mean family union, because we've oh, never okay, actually go. gotten together yet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, all right. That sounds like a wedding. I know. All right, we do have. We support all cultures here. Clearly, we, we do have. Uh, we do have, of course, um, reason why we don't have an ad plug tonight. Uh, if you follow uh, pop culture and don't live under a rock, you may have heard that unfortunately, Kevin Conroy passed away. And, uh, this is a huge. This is a huge blow to uh, to to fandoms. Unfortunately, he was only. Uh, up 66 i believe was was the age he, he was not super old sadly um now before we get into the emotional part that we i, I do just want to point out i just want to get a rant a little bit because i am a little angered by some of the facts i'm learning not not well the thing is i had no idea who he was I didn't realize that he had such a respect, not only to the fans and fandom, but for his own position and, and the humility that he had being the voice of Batman for 30 years. When he says it to people, he's not trying to brag. He's, he's, he was humbled by that fact. And the reason I'm mad is because I'm finding out about this post-mortem. Because we have a culture that is obsessed with the negative, to put it lightly. We're obsessed with celebrity gossip. We're obsessed with, with you know, all the horrible stuff that goes on. And, and, and everything I've heard about this man makes me wish that I had had a chance to have dinner with him. Because he's that type of celebrity that I, I want to meet. He's, there's, very, very, there's very few celebrities these days, especially now that we're getting to learn who some of them really are. And a lot of them are fake. That I actually have any interest in getting to know on a personal level. Uh, Weird Al being one of them. And that's the only ones off the top of my head. Um, otherwise, I don't really care. Um, for a lot of celebrities, this stuff is just a job. And that's okay. I can respect that. It just means my interest in you is really good. Um, Seth MacFarlane would be another one I'd love to meet in person and get to know. He actually seems... Well, I don't agree with a lot of his stuff. At the same time, I do think he's... He's... He's smart, well-articulated, and I think that we'd have some pretty good conversations, if not a full-blown arguments. Um, Kevin Conroy, I don't think there'd be any arguing. Everything I've seen from him, he's, he's very, uh, he was very intelligent. He was very smart. Um, I don't know if you've seen, uh, but to, uh, one of our guests that we had here on the Star Wars special, Mexican Iron Man, um, one of the other 
one of Mexican Iron Man's friends, Loki, actually uh, got him to do a uh, cameo happy birthday message. And I watched it on Clobber and Times' channel last night, and wow. Um, most cameos you get are going to be like five to ten minutes. I got one from Steve Downs for one of my good buddies at Super Gamecraft, Bronson, uh, for his birthday, and it was good. He really did it. He delivered. Um, but Kevin Conroy made it a conversation. Uh, it was one-sided, but you felt like you were actually having a discussion with him. The way that he carried himself, the way that he presented himself. I, I will now regret never having met this man. Um, because he's he seems like he would fit in well on this panel. Um, and and it's and that's just it. You know, one of the kind of things that rubs me the wrong way with Shatner was how ashamed he was to be Captain Kirk for the longest time. And even Leonard Nimoy didn't really embrace Spock for the first few years either. And again, if that's how you choose to be, that's that's your business. It's just that I'm not interested well, it, in, in being friends with workers, you know. <laughs> to me goes to a greater question of were they ashamed or shamed? Probably a bit of both. And, 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 well, and I think that's that's something but, but, that, but I, I, let's, that's that really not shows distract from Kevin Conroy, why basically. people like Kevin... Right. Well, I mean, that's why Kevin probably maintained such a discreet benevolence is because he actually achieved, you know, Batman, the voice of so much good, uh, especially in the darkness, like light in the darkness, light despite darkness, being your own light when all other light is completely blotted out by the worst and yet still having to go to work every day still having to live in our world every day and so for him he was batman while simultaneously incapable of being batman and he respected and revered that and i think that the same applied to kirk and nimoy or not kirk but uh shatner and nimoy in in the sense that they couldn't maintain the benevolence of the character they portrayed off the screen and that speaks to who kevin conroy is as a human because despite most likely being shamed despite most likely being belittled for being a voice actor and not an on-screen live action actor you know all the industry belittling that does happen just because people are trying to make sure that they don't lose their own level and in that, Kevin still fought. He was Batman off the screen. He maintained character, compassion, resilience, despite the world constantly proving him wrong, constantly showing its ugly side to him. And yet he remained Batman. So yeah, uh, I only bring all this up to say that like maybe Shatner and Nimoy had to hide because they weren't as strong and it's okay to not be as strong and i'm not trying to and i'm not trying to bash kevin's cooler i'm just saying that because he was strong right because if you embrace your role and if you if it if you actually if it means that much and that's probably why i'm more interested in meeting voice actors and actresses because i mean along with the talent of not of having literally your imagination just to work with there is a there is a special 
nuance to it. But Corian, you were telling me a story about Kevin behind the scenes, and I'd like you to share that. Yeah. Now, please. So, um, I was actually living in New York very shortly after 9/11, and one of the things that was a, a story that went out that turned out to be true was that immediately after 9/11, and when the, the the crew to try to deal with the wreckage was was being brought out, and people were doing search and rescue. Kevin went out, basically bought out a butcher shop, went down to where they were feeding everybody who was doing the work on the, uh, you know, trying to recover from it. And he just cooked. He just was quietly working in the kitchens. He brought a whole bunch of food to try to help out. And he, he did the work. And as he was working, somebody called, hey, hey, you're Batman. And he was like, uh, yeah, I played Batman on the, the animated series. And he goes, listen, would you mind for everybody here doing the voice? And he goes, ah, no problem. So he does his classic, I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. And the whole crowd erupts. And everyone started going, hey man, we got Batman on our side. We're going to be okay. And you know, a lot of people needed that morale here. They needed to know that there was something bigger and somebody there who was pushing for them to, to do well there. So it really lifted up spirits and it really kept people going. And the thing I love about it most was he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't coming down there to be a star or be a famous person. He was coming down there to just barbecue for people Big because they needed somebody to, yeah, just to take care of people. And that's What is the most wonderful. Batman thing you can do in a catastrophe? You buy out a butcher shop and feed the people cleaning up. Yep. And you do it like nobody, you're not in costume. You don't have a posse. You don't have paparazzi. All you have is the meat that you brought and somebody heard your voice. Like that's so Bruce Wayne. Like, wait, I know you, you're Bruce Wayne. You're cleaning up after that attack that Batman saved us from. Thank you. Yeah. But that, and that's, that to me summarizes Kevin Conroy really, really well. He wasn't out for the fame. He wasn't out for anything else. He was just a good man trying to do right by the people around him. And that's apparently, and, that's apparently how he is at, was at yeah, cons. Too. Mm-hmm. He wasn't there because, you know, he wanted celebrity. He was there because the fans wanted him there. And that's how much he loved the fans, was doing it for the fans. Like, this man is now one of my role models in life. He, he is somebody that I want to try and, and be more like. because, And that, that's why I, I opened with the statement that I did. Because all the clout and all the celebrity recognition that the, the more top tier or more famous celebrities or even politicians have... This man deserved that and more. You know, like, that's that's my whole point in all of this. Is guys, our focus as a culture is just off. When men I... like him and the good that he did is isn't even brought up in the mainstream until after he dies. I don't like well, that at all. Well, okay, so that I think is. I don't know. I I, I feel like that's a little bit of a demand to to request sure. that you know like people don't buy the worst tabloids like like there have been efforts by different you know uh writing 
institutions that have like initially started, we're only going to give the good news and we're not selling to anyone. So right. like, there's a little bit like consumers don't buy the good news, but that's also why I really like the way we prep our show is the audience knows this. Like, I don't know 99% of what Corion and Parker know. I, I don't even know what they know about the things we're talking about, let alone like what they know about what they know. And so like in the instance of, hey, we're gonna be doing a, uh, a, a memorial for a person, I don't research these people. I, I kind of come into this completely blind because I was blind when they died and I'm blind when they're dead. And when Parker and Corion decided that they, they wanna actually pay homage to someone, I, I love that I don't know because none of these homages have been the same. We haven't been like, and unfortunately, a really wonderful celebrity who did seven good things and we name the seven good things in order of their goodness. And we never talk about their bad or we never talk about their turmoil. No, we talk about the person as you two knew them, as you two experienced their relationship with you. And Kevin Conroy, he's Batman. I've watched a ton of Batman, had no idea till he died and everybody told me Batman died. Yeah, I, um, if you guys want her to read one of the most beautiful things I ever think I read from him, he wrote uh, a quick piece called Finding Batman. Mm. And I think it's worth checking out. Because, Did he you know, contribute to the book, uh, The Psychology of Batman? I'm not sure if he did. He might he have, actually. He I might have. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. It, Keep going, Graham. I'm going to look that up. It wouldn't surprise me if he did, though, because let's be honest. He played Batman for well over 30 years. He was, you know, in the studio with Mark Hamill's Joker routinely. And in my opinion, look, I like Heath Ledger's Joker, but Mark Hamill's Joker is by far more iconic. And you need somebody who can stand up to that joker and that is kevin conroy's delivery and that's not easy to do because let's be honest mark hamill's got a a solid joker going he's been doing that role almost as long and you know to have these two titans just be able to chew scenery at each other and spit it out either way and it work out every time that takes a lot and that's a lot of work and to see how crestfallen and how hurt Mark Hamill is over losing Kevin says a lot, right? Um, you know, it, it's one thing to be um, respected by, you know, fans. It says a lot to be respected by your co-workers, too. It does. It says so much in terms of the love that was felt like because because we've all had co-workers that like we miss when they get a better job but we're also like cheering them on because they got a better job we've all had co-workers that we left as we went to better jobs and we hoped they did things and we never saw or talked to them again but like some of us met our spouses our loves at those jobs and have helped them grow and some of us met their best friend and lost their best friend 
at those jobs, at the workplace. And I think that's such a beautiful thing to hear because of how much debauchery and just villainy that we hear that happens in the Hollywood circles. It, it never sounds like a pretty job. And, and, and I, to hear that Mark Hamill felt like, fell in love with a friend yeah. and, and made such a good friend. And I wanna to clarify too, I'm not making a demand of anything because the culture and the people have to decide for themselves. I'm simply calling attention to one of the one of the issues that I think is here and and trying to in, inspire the conversation, inspire people to maybe let's maybe try to move on from tabloid culture and, and recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all on the same planet. We're all in this game together. And, you know, if we want that DS9, that TNG future, if we want that world that, that Kevin really just tried to set the example for we got to recognize we got to call out the bad and we got to call out the fact that we are obsessed with the wrong things now that said and you don't have to you don't have strikes. to you don't have to 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 completely up in and change your lifestyle and change stuff you can slowly recognize the stuff in your life like i have a problem with scrolling on facebook and reddit and i need to work on that because i have a book i need to be writing i have other stuff I need to be doing for this for this show and this network, and I have, uh, and even playing video games is a much better use of my time than scrolling on Reddit, Facebook, and Twitter. And so, I I'm not saying this from a position of authority because I don't have any authority. Uh, the only time I have authority is if I see another human violating the consent of another. Then I have an obligation to step in and stop that from from happening. Otherwise. Everyone's got to make these decisions on their own. Everyone's got to recognize what kind of world do we want to build? Do we want to build, you know, do we want to build a fake world like we've had the last, ever since I've been alive, if not longer? Or do we want a good world that Kevin Conroy was was trying to build, that he did build? with He did make the world a better place in small ways, and, and not even really, those weren't small ways. It was huge ways, but it was, it was acts that were small for him to do you know, because I don't have the money to buy a butcher shop and start cooking for people. Wish I did, but I don't yet. And he did. But he did it because he wanted to do it. And he did it because it was the right thing. And he did it without being told to. It's because it's what he wanted. And that's really what I want to end this note and this memorial on is, is let's look at the example that he set in his life. And let's try to try to be more like that. And not entirely, because we are still our own selves. But unfortunately, uh, we're down to the last uh, two minutes or so of broadcast, and uh, I do just I do just want to say, guys, um, thank you everyone for watching. Uh, Rende, Glenda, Nemesis of Eden, we do love when you guys show up, and anybody else who's lurking, feel free to join the discussion. Um, we, we we don't bite. No, and we appreciate everyone's input. We appreciate that you guys like listening to us, but we also appreciate when you guys contribute as well. Bo- both both. But we're also here for you guys. You know, we, we love putting on this show for you. We're here every week um, because we love being here. We love talking pop culture. We love sharing in the memory of good people like Kevin Conn. We we also respond to, to late messages. So if you guys if you guys say something later, watching this on your time later, feel free to comment. We'll we'll come back. I check regularly, at least two three times a week. So. Whenever you want to have a thought, share that thought because we want to hear it. Yep, absolutely. absolutely.
itself. And if you'd like to see any, if you have any suggestions for content you'd like to see us cover or try to incorporate, we are definitely open to ideas. Um, but otherwise, uh, thanks for watching again, listening on the replay. My name's Petey York. We'll see you next week. Stay tuned. This has been a presentation of the Writer Brothers Tuesday Night Live Show. The Writer Brothers, restoring respect into discourse.